Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This time on Vet Story. The Chinese attack the American positions north of Unsan. In the chaos, dodging bullets and explosions, Father Capon raced between foxholes, out past the front lines, dragging the wounded to safety. It's going around trying to aid the wounded. Do not let your heart be troubled or be afraid. He said every time you put your head up above the the, the ditch or whatever you were in, he said bullets would fly. And he said all of a sudden, he said he felt a hand on his back. He turned around and he said it was Father Capon. The Medal of Honor to Chaplain Emil J. Capon, United States Army. I think as if the blessing from God, really. I'm Phil Briggs, and this vet story is about the life of a veteran who is more than just a Medal of Honor recipient. There are many who consider him worthy of being a saint. He is Father Emil Capon. The descriptions of his service are like the plot lines of best-selling books or even big-budget Hollywood movies. In fact, some of the audio we've already heard in this podcast is from a promotional video for a book by journalists Roy Wenzel and Travis Haying entitled Miracles of Father Capon, Priest, Soldier, Korean War Hero. We hear a hero's voice as we listen to this sermon being delivered by Father Emil Capon of Pilsen, Kansas. He had his apostles gathered about him one day and he said to them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled or be afraid. But while there are many veterans we recognize as absolute heroes, there's something about Father Capon's story that is almost biblical. Well, I'm a priest for the Diocese of Wichita. That's Father John Hotze. 
who spoke with Connecting Vets' Jared Watson about the miraculous life of Father Capon. Back in 2001, uh, Bishop Olmsted, who was our bishop at that time, had asked me to start to look into Father Capon's life to see if it was something that we should be pursuing to see if we can have him named a saint. Since 2001, I've been kind of working on it. I've had other other jobs as I was doing that also. I mean, pastor of various parishes and also the judicial vicar for the diocese. But I've been working on that, gathering information. Um, in, let's see, 2008, we officially opened his cause for canonization, and we started gathering documents from his life and interviewing everybody that we could find to tell us their story about their experiences with Father Capon. Um, and then in 2011, we closed our the diocesan phase of the work, um, and we did that by sending 8,000-some pages of documents over to the Congregation for Saints in Rome uh, that talked about Father Capon's life. Caitlin and I are sitting here with collective, like, wow faces, <laughs> 8,000 pages. Um, yeah. So... So, so you're you're kind of you you kind of know a little bit about his life at this point. I'm guessing <laughs> um, yep. since 2001, which is even before he was ever recognized as a uh, with a Medal of Honor by President right. Obama. This this is an amazing story. And Father Capon has been called a shepherd in combat boots. His fellow soldiers who felt his grace and his mercy called him a saint, a blessing from God. If you would, knowing so much about this story and, and being intimately involved, tell us about Father Capon's life. Well, from the very beginning, and even back well before he joined the military, um, he kind of distinguished himself as somebody that wanted to help other people. I mean, growing up in a, the small town of Pilsen, Kansas, uh, I mean, he helped out there, um, would often ride his bicycle to school an hour early so he could help out with the, the, the pastor there at the parish and serve Mass. And um, all through school, I mean, he would help out his cl- classmates. He was um, intelligent, and actually he was advanced at, at two different times. I mean, skipping, skipping a year in school. Um, but the school was run by some nuns from, from Wichita, and one of his classmates commented that, that he could tell when people were struggling even before the teachers did. <laughs> And uh, it was kind of like a three-room schoolhouse, and he said that he would just kind of watch, and if there was somebody struggling, he would be there to help him out, even before the teachers noticed that there was a problem. Um, so that's how he grew up. Um, he did study for the priesthood and became a priest for the Diocese of Wichita. Um, he was assigned back to his home parish in Pilsen, Kansas. Uh, this was back in 1940, so it was before the United States got into World War II. Um, but at that time, there was a Harrington Air Base that was about 10 miles away from Pilsen. And he would go to the Harrington Air Base and, and say Mass and bring the sacraments to the, the soldiers that were there. Um, I think that's where he first got his, his love for the military and for his love for the, the veterans. Um, because when World War II, um, when we got involved in World War II, he asked the bishop if he could become a cha- military chaplain. He did become a military chaplain in World War II um, and was sent to the India and Burma theater. Um, when he got there, most of the fighting was over, but uh, over in that area, but there were still pockets of resistance. And 
I did talk to actually it was his his driver, his Jeep driver that uh, was with him, and he said it got to be kind of a, a running joke there in the the, the camps. He said that uh, their their Jeep was shot out from under him, underneath him. Uh, he said that was their second Jeep that that had been destroyed. Um, so he said they wouldn't give him another Jeep, so he would have to give out on a bicycle. Uh, but, but they said they said it got to be kind of a joke, and he said they would even take bets. He said uh, when they would hear uh, gunshot, gunfire uh, break out, he said they would bet on as to how long it would take Father Capon to get on his bike and where he would be coming from and where he would be going to. Oh uh, but they said invariably that he would just jump on his bicycle and uh, go to where he, he heard the gunfire because he had always felt that he was there to serve the men. Um, and he knew that where they needed him was up at the front lines. So that's what he did. Um, so he was got some was uh, distinguished service there there in World War II. Um, after World War II, he came back to um, Wichita to the, his home diocese. Um, he went to study at Catholic University in Washington D.C. for a while. Um, came back, and when he came back to the, the diocese again, um, the military had put out a call for the, the chaplains to return to the military because they were finding themselves in in a need of, of the military, uh, or of, of chaplains once again in the military. Um, he petitioned the Bishop of, of Wichita if he could go. The Bishop kind of ignored him for a while, uh, but he persisted, and about six months later, the Bishop gave him permission to rejoin the military, rejoin the Army. Um, he went to Fort Bliss, Texas, uh, was at Fort Bliss, Texas for a while, um, and then he was uh, sent to um, Washington State, where he eventually disembarked to head over to Japan um, and was there when the Korean conflict broke out. So when he was there, um, knowing full well that he'd be going into Korea, again, he was there for the men. I mean, the, the people that I was able to interview with him um, talked about how he was there. They said when the, the, the troops were out there doing maneuvers, when they are out there uh, trying to prepare themselves to go into battle, that Father Capon was there right alongside of them. Uh, they said if they were out there in the weather intense, he said that's where he was too. And they said none of that was expected of the chaplains, but he was just always there with the men. Um, eventually he went to Korea, or they were shipped into Korea, um, did the same thing when he was in Korea. I mean, was there for the men. Uh, all the men talked to him about it. Uh, there was an, one man, a, a Tibor Rubin, uh, who also was awarded the Medal of Honor, um, and he was a, a Jewish man. He had been in the concentration camps during World War II. And he told me that he had promised himself, or he had promised that when he was released from the, the concentration camps over in Hungary, uh, that he would do whatever he could to pay back the United States, since they were the ones that liberated the camp that he was in. Um, and he decided to do that by joining the army. Um, and he was telling me, and he said, you know, I knew Father Capon was a saint uh, before we were captured. There was one time that he just knew that he was going to die. He said, we are there, and he said everybody was kind of scattered out. Uh, he said everybody was just in whatever ditch or gully they could find. Um, they were under heavy fire. He said every time you put your head up above the, the, the ditch or whatever you were in, he said bullets would fly. And he said he just had a feeling that he was going to die. And he said all of a sudden, he said he felt 
a hand on his back, and he said he turned around and he said it was Father Capon. And he said Father Capon just started talking to him, and he said he always stuffed his pockets with fruit or any kind of food that he could get, and he said he pulled out some fruit and he asked me if I wanted something to eat, so he said of course I took it. Um, but he said he wondered how was, he was even able to get out to him because of the gunfire. Um, but he said that, that he was just talking to me and he just told me that, that everything was going to be all right. Uh, and he said that he was told him that he had to move on to go talk to some other men. Um, and he said that he asked me if I wanted to pray. And he said, I, he said yes. And he said that he prayed the Hebrew scriptures with him. And he said, here it was, a Catholic priest, and he said why he came out to me to begin with, I don't know. But he said, then why, why would he feel like he needed to pray with me when, when even praying the Hebrew Scriptures? And he said that he just knew from that time on that, that Father Capon was, was a saint. He said that he just got this feeling of calm over him, and he said he just knew that everything was going to be all right. Um, so that's kind of how he was before they were captured. It's beautiful. Um, Yes, it's a very selfless and and obviously someone who was full of empathy for others and and found a way to um, to make his way over through gunfire, race, religion, creed. None of that got in Father Capon's way from what I've read in regards to um, service members that he was there for. Right. And that all the way up until until their capture, which if if you would uh, explain that for us. Well, when they were captured, uh, this was still before um, be- before the Chinese were officially involved in the war. Officially, yes. Um, <laughs> yes, other other people had commented about how, uh, other POWs had commented about how they had, had seen the, the Chinese troops there, um, but every time they, they radioed it, radioed it in, uh, they would tell them, well, there can't be Chinese troops because they, they don't, don't exist. Well, <laughs> they said, when you see thousands of them, it's kind of hard to say they, they don't exist. <laughs> Uh, but but he was. They were talking, or he said that um, when they were under fire, and this would have been uh, during the Battle of Unsan, um, or and um, uh, they were just literally being overrun by the North by the North Koreans and the Chinese. Um, and Father Kapan would go out, and he would pull the wounded back and, and uh, bring the wounded back, so they wouldn't get killed out, out there on the battlefields. Um, and one man that I was talking to um, said that he thinks that he just kind of dumbfounded the enemy because uh, they said here was a guy that had no guns and he would go up to the enemy that had guns and he would literally just push him out of the way so that he could get to the wounded and he would drag him back and he said there was a foxhole uh, that he was taking the wounded and putting the wounded in um, and it was the foxhole was kind of crescent, crescent shaped and he was bringing them to one end of the, the, the foxhole. Uh, well, then some Chinese and North Koreans saw what he was doing, so they started to throw grenades into the foxhole. Um, but they were hitting the, the far end, the part where, where I mean, there, where there are no, none of the wounded yet. Um, but they keep kept getting closer and closer. Well, one of the people that was taking refuge there in the foxhole was a Chinese officer, and he spoke English. So Father Capon convinced him to, to arrange for a surrender for them so they wouldn't be killed by these grenades that were getting closer and closer. Um, so they did wind up surrendering. Um, even then, Father Capon had, had 
uh, they had put out a, a um, order that everybody was to disperse, that everybody was trying to make it to try to make it to safety the best they could. Um, but Father Capon and a Captain Anderson, who was a doctor, uh, both decided to stay behind with the wounded. So that's why they were there to begin with. Um, so they negotiated the, the surrender. Uh, so they surrendered so that the, the men, the wounded there, would, would not be killed. Um, it was known, actually, that the, the reason that he was given or awarded the Medal of Honor was with his heroics um, in saving one man, a man named Herbert Miller, uh, who was still alive. And Herbert Miller um, was talking about how they were just trying to scatter. He said that he was with about six other men, and he said one of them was their commanding officer. And he said they were kind of hunkered down in a ditch, and then there was a, a field, an open field, and then trees on the other side of the open field. Um, and he, they thought if they could get to the trees, they would be able to make it to safety. Um, so the commanding officer and one other uh, serviceman got up and tried to run across the field. They made it about halfway before they were gunned down. Um, so the other four of them decided to just scatter to try to make it to safety. Um, Herb stood up and he said he's, before he was able to start running, uh, he was shot. He was shot in the hand. Uh, he said that the blast from the shot knocked him back down in the ditch. When he tried to stand up, he said he looked down and there was a grenade at his feet before he could do anything about it. Grenade went off. It broke his left ankle and the bottom half of his leg was just in shreds. Uh, he said that he thought he was going to bleed to death, so he said he just laid back down. He said he couldn't walk on it anyway, so he had pulled a, a North Korean soldier, a dead North Korean soldier, on top of him so that he could hide underneath this dead soldier. Um, and he said he stayed like that throughout the night. Um, the following day, um, he said that he could hear the troops coming back through, obviously checking to make sure everybody was dead. Um, this was that would have been the day after Father Capon had been captured. So he was had already been captured, and they were getting ready to take him and the other men that that could march uh, and take him to a prison camp. Um, Herb Miller said that he fought, felt them pulling the body off of him. Um, it was well known that if you were injured, if you couldn't walk, that they were just going to kill you. Yeah. Um, it was their intention to, to march everybody to the prison camp, and if you couldn't march, they would just kill you. Um, so Herb Miller said there was a, there the, the um, Chinese, um, uh, Chinese soldier was there. He said he had the gun pointed to his forehead. Um, he said he started to yell at him. He said he assumed he was telling him to get up, so he said he tried to stand up, just fell back down. He couldn't, couldn't stand on his leg. Um, so he said he had the gun there pointed to his forehead. He said, I shut my eyes, and he said, I hope I was praying at the time. He said, I don't know if I was or not, but he said, I, he said that, was, that was my intent. And he said, then all of a sudden, he said he, he heard a little commotion, so he said he opened his eyes, and he said, here is this uh, United States soldier pushing this uh, this uh, or Chinese soldier out of the way. Incredible. and. He said, why the guy didn't just shoot them both? He said, I have no idea. Yeah. And he said, how Father Capon got there? He said, I have no idea. He said, I knew they were down the road gathering them together. But he said, Father Capon just left the group there and walked down and came down. And he said, he just picked me up. And he said, he started to carry me. And he said that he carried him. Uh, it was like 30 or 40 miles to that, that, that first prison camp that they were put in. Oh my God. 
Um, he said yeah. several times he told them that you can't do this, and he said occasionally he would set me down, and he said I would kind of hop along beside him for a few feet, and he said then he would just pick me up, and he said he told me, I said I told him, he said you can't continue to do this. He said you're going to kill yourself, and he said his words to me were, if I put you down, they're going to kill you. So he said I'm going to carry you, and he carried him all the way to that first prison camp. Incredible. Um, yeah. And, um, I mean, similar, similar words. I mean, when they, they first um, gathered them all together, and uh, actually it became known as Father Capon's Valley to some of the men uh, because the first um, camp that they put them in was a, a valley, and it was actually Simbakal Valley, which was a, a narrow valley between a couple mountains. Um, they gathered all the men up in there before they started to march them up to the, the prison camp number five. Uh, which is where they, they Father Capon was, was kept. Um, but even even going from the Simbok Hall Valley up to the, the prison camp number five, again, he or, arranged for people to um, be, be carried. Um, temperatures were between 30 and 40 degrees below zero. Mm. Uh, as mo- most people know, I mean, the, the soldiers didn't have any winter, winter gear. They thought the war was going to be over uh, before winter set in. Um, that wasn't the case. Many of them froze. Um, a Dr. Essenson told me that in the group that, that was with Father Capon uh, going to prison camp number five, he said the group was around 200 men. Um, he said they know they lost about eight men uh, on the way up to that prison camp number five with men freezing to death. Uh, but he said when they got up there, they said that they found out that other groups lost as many as 40 or 50 men in that, that trek up to prison camp number five. And this Dr. Essenson said, he said, the reason we didn't lose that many was because of Father Capon. Uh, he said that he would carry people and he said he would march up and down the, 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 the lines, making sure that those that were kind of stumbling or faltering uh, would have some help. Um, Dr. Essenson said that he could tell people to help others, but he said they wouldn't listen to him. But he said when Father Capon did it, um, he said they had to listen to him because he said here he was doing exactly what he was asking them to do. And he said, how could you say some, tell somebody no when they are obviously jeopardizing their own life doing what they are asking, what he was asking them to do? Um, so he said he thought his first miracle was saving all of those men uh, that were in that march uh, up to prison camp number five. When they got to the prison camp, um, he spent his time uh, taking care of the wounded, um, making bandages for them, uh, cleaning their wounds. Uh, um, he would try to find food for them to drink, uh, try to provide them with fresh water. Uh, one of the biggest problems in the, the prison camp was dysentery. Um, they said that if, if somebody was there, that Father Capon would take their clothes off. Um, take their clothes to the, to the river and, and literally have to break through ice so that he could clean out their clothes. But uh, he said this was all for people that had soiled clothing because they couldn't take care of themselves, that they were too weak and too dehydrated uh, to be able to even get up and get to the latrine. But Father Capon was there to, to help him out. Literally his entire time there in the, the POW camp was uh, being of service to his fellow POWs. Um, they talk about how he would go to try to steal food. Um, I mean, they would tell me stories about how the prisoners were required to 
to go unload the book, the boats. The, the prison camp, prison camp number five, was on the Yalu River, uh, which is the border between uh, China and North Korea. Uh, and boats would come up the river, and they would have to unload the boats for supplies for the, the soldiers, but also for the guards. Um, and they would talk about how they would have these lines of, of prisoners that would go down to the boats. And uh, there was one, one section where they would have to go around a, a building. And they said that Father Capon had snuck into that building, and the building was made out of just wood slats. And he had made it so that he could loosen one of the wood slats. And what they would do is as the line was coming up, there would be some man hiding in the building. And as they would come to this wood slat or this place at the corner of the building where guards couldn't really see them, um, one of them would jump in the building through the wood slat and that other one would come out. Uh, the one going into the building would have food, I mean, potatoes or, or rice or something, and they would take it into that, that building and hide it until they could uh, distribute it to the, to the people or to the POWs. Um, they were on a starvation diet. I mean, they were given, I think, 500 grams of millet, which is that, that if you're familiar with bird seed, it's that, that um, little round seed that's in, in bird seed, and that's all they were given to eat. So, needless to say, they, they, were, they were starving. Um, so Father Capon would, or, or would organize this so that they could get more food. Um, one of the biggest problems in the, the POW camp was lice. Um, and they said that lice would get in your clothes and they would start to, to bite you. Um, this Dr. Essenston, who was uh, uh, an American uh, doctor, was explaining to me, he said, that's how men killed themselves. They said that they would get so depressed um, that they would want to just end it all. And he said it was very easy for them to do. And he said all they had to do was quit picking the lice off their body. Uh, they said that there, the lice, he said there, there would be so many of them. He said that first day, he said if they quit picking the lice off their body, he said they'd be all right after the first day. But he said the second day, um, he said they would start to lose their color. But he said then... We were in a prison camp, so he said everybody was sickly and everybody was looking looking bad. Um, but he said then if they continued to not pick the lice off their body, by the third day, he said you could see it in the color. He said they would just turn to be like an ashen gray. He said by that time it was too late. He said there was nothing that he could do as a doctor to, to help them out. He said the, the lice would have... Bitten, bitten them so much and drained so much of their blood that they were going to die. Um, and so Father Capon would, would go, and for those that weren't able to pick them off themselves, they, he said that he would pick the lice off of people. Uh, they said you would have to take off your clothes, that they would gather like in the seams of your shirts and stuff like that, and you'd have to pick them off. They said the lice were kind of hard-bodied insects, and so they said to kill them, you had to squeeze them in between your fingernails. That just squeezing them in your finger wouldn't, wouldn't kill them. You had to use your fingernails. So they said when you did this, your hands would just turn black from having to kill these, these lice. Uh, but they said if you didn't do it every day, then you were going to die. Um, uh, so like I say, Father Capon took that upon himself to like those, those that were, were sickly or those that couldn't take care of themselves. Um, he would... He would pick the, the lice off their bodies and, and help them out in that way. Um, so he literally gave his time. Um, he would organize or get a couple other guys to go with him to help in the, the infirmary. 
uh, where they would go when they said mainly it was an infirmary for the guards as opposed to the, the POWs. Um, but there were always a few POWs in it. Um, so they would go there under the guise of visiting those POWs. Um, but he said then they would kind of watch to see where the Chinese doctors and stuff would put medicine and what kind of medicine they'd be using because everything, <laughs> all the bottles of medicine were labeled in Chinese or, or Korean. So they didn't know what was what, but they would watch to see what they would use so that they could sneak in and and go to like the, the, the medicine or the drawer where they saw them giving medicine to somebody that obviously had dysentery and they would take it and give it to their doctors for them to use for, for those that had dysentery. Um, so like I say, he spent his whole time uh, just trying to, to make the life better of those people, of the other POWs. Um, one of the amazing stories is Father Capon was in the prison camp for only about seven months. Um, he was captured on November 2nd of 1950, um, and he died on May 23rd of 1951. Um, and that was at the, towards the beginning of the war. The war went for another two and a half years. And um, so he had died like two and a half years, and the, the men were in the prison camp for another two and a half years. Uh, but when they got out of the prison camp, the first thing that those POWs did was start talking and telling stories about Father Capon. Um, they would tell stories about how he, he, lived, he saved their lives. Um, all of them will stay, say that he was a man of hope. Uh, and that if, if he hadn't instilled that hope in them, that, that they would have died there in the, the POW camp. Um, so they're all, I mean, still telling. I mean, two and a half years after he died, and them having to go through the hell that would have been that prison camp for another two and a half years, yet they still remembered Father Capon and what he had done for him. So he must have had quite an impact on all of those, on all of those men there in the POW camp. To make them want to continue to live right. even exactly. after he was gone. Exactly. They said when he was, they were taking him away, they took him to the, the camp hospital and they, they, prisoners called it a death house because they said people did not come out of there alive. Um, and when they were taking him up, at first, um, Father Capon, uh, before he passed away, I mean, he developed dysentery. He was starting to get over dysentery. Uh, he had gotten an infection in his eye, so he had to wear an eye patch. Um, he had gotten a blood clot in his leg, so his leg had swollen up, so he wasn't able to walk. Uh, he had gotten pneumonia, um, so he had all of these medical problems going on for himself. Um, so just prior to his dying, um, uh, I mean, he, he had gone into like a comatose state, I mean, just a sleeping and stuff, and, and um, had a high fever. Um, they said that his fever broke, though, and that, that he had woken up and he was actually able to talk and was talking to some of the men, but he was still sleeping a lot. And that's when the North Koreans and Chinese found out that he was sick. They wanted him dead uh, because, because he inspired the men to live, and that isn't what they wanted. I mean, they wanted to break the morale of the men, um, and yet Father Capon was obviously fighting that. Um, they would have indoctrination sessions for, for, the, uh, for communism. And Father Capon would always stand up and refute whatever it is they said. Um, the commandant of the, of the prison camp was a, a comrade soon, 
and they said that they used to get they they used to enjoy whenever Father Capon would stand up and and correct them because they said he would get so mad and they said oftentimes he would just be up on the stage jumping up and down yelling at Father Capon to tell him to shut up and and they said he I mean he refused I mean he continued to do it so they wanted him dead um, so when they saw that he had been sick. Uh, they are going to use that opportunity to get rid of him. Um, they are afraid to outright kill him because they are afraid of uh, the uprising that uh, that would cause. Uh, so they took him up to the camp hospital or the death house, and about three days later, they found out that he had he had died there in that death house. Right. The, yeah. The the term hospital was used loosely yep. from what right. I had read. Yeah. And I yep. read um, from the ceremony, the Medal of Honor ceremony, that he had actually right before while they were bringing him to the death house that he had actually forgiven his prisoners yeah yep when um one of the guys uh, one of the pow's a man named bob woods who is also still alive and outside of st louis um he was one of the ones that carried the stretcher up uh to the death house um and he said when they were carrying him up he said every one of them was crying so he said here i was with tears running down my face and he said he asked himself why he, why he was crying, and he said it was because they were taking the best of themselves to die. Um, and he said he was definitely the best man that he had ever met. And he said, and then when he said we were taking him up there to the death house, he said if we had passed a, a, a guard, a Chinese or a North Korean guard, or even one of the officers, he said he would make his stop. And he said he would ask them to forgive him if he had done anything to hurt them. Um, and then he said, and then he would give them a blessing and and ask God for forgiveness for them because they didn't realize what they were doing. Um, and he said, here this man, he, he said, here where you're taking this man to his death. And he said he was stopping and asking forgiveness for those people that were actually killing him. So could you talk about how this canonization process started? Um, well, for the longest time, I mean, it was kind of in the, the hands of the military archdiocese, uh, but also always with, with um, Wichita um, playing a factor in it also. And uh, the military archdiocese are actually the ones that began the process uh, way back in 1993. Um, but because of, I mean, it, it does involve money. I mean, you do have to pay people for, for this work and stuff that's being done uh, and for just collecting and just, I mean, g- gathering the information. Um, uh, so the military archdiocese didn't really have the money or the personnel to kind of continue on with the process. Um, so the Diocese of Wichita kind of took it over. And like I say, this was really about 2001. Um, so in 2001, I started just doing kind of a um, um, cursory research about Father Capon's life, talking to people, kind of in informal interviews and things like that. Um, in 2008 uh, is when we first petitioned Rome uh, so that we could actually start um, and do it in an, an official capacity. Um, when, when I started in 2001, I, like I say, I've always had other jobs along with this, and I thought, well, if, if I want to get out of work, what I need to do is go out and find some dirt on Father Capon. <laughs> and then it won't, go, I, it won't go very if, far. That's right. If I find some dirt on him, then we can just stop it there. <laughs> but, but I never did. Um, the, the, worst, the worst thing anybody has ever said about Father Capon uh, was this, 
Dr. Sidney Essenson, and like I say, he was he was a great man, and I he taught me told me a lot of or I learned a lot about Father Catan from him, and I, he said. Uh, so I asked him, I said, well, is there anything that, that really bothered you about him, or is there anything you think that he did wrong or whatever? And he said, he thought for a moment, and at first he just said no. And he said, wait a minute. He said, yes, there is. And I said, oh, what was that? And he said, well, you know, he used to make me so mad. He said, here we were in the prison camp. And he said, I was the only doctor helping out or trying to help out all these people or whatever. And um, so he said, well, Father Capon, he said, was so helpful, and I thought so highly of him. He said... I did everything I could to try to get him back and up on, on, on his feet. So he said, I would make sure that he had food. So he said, I would get him a bowl of food. I would take it to him, and I would tell him that he had to eat this. But he said, him being the father Capon, he said, as soon as I would leave, he would decide that other people needed the food more than him. Mm. So he said, while the food got eaten, he said it got eaten by the person on one side or the person on the other side, uh, Father Capon, because he would roll over and he would feed them instead of eating the food himself. So Against said, doctor's orders. Yes, he said, that's what I have to say about him. He was a lousy patient. <laughs> so, so that was his, his claim. And, you know, I, I felt bad about, well, even interviewing all of these, these POWs, I mean, a lot of times they would they would break down into tears, I mean, having to remember some of this stuff. And I kind of felt like a schmuck, I mean, doing some of these interviews, because here these were guys that were my dad's age, and here I was making them cry and stuff. And Dr. Essenson said no. He said, but you know, he said, I felt so bad, because um, he said, I think I'm probably the reason why Father Capon died. And I said, well, why do you say that? And he said, well, I had made him be on his back. He said, with his leg, blood clot in his leg, he said that was very serious. And he said, we had rigged up a trapeze type thing for him to have his leg elevated. Um, and he said he kept begging me to get up so that he could go and minister to the other people that were sick. And he said, finally, he was had gotten better. And he said the, the swelling in the leg had gone down. So I told him that he could get up for about a half hour at a time, that he could get up for a half hour and then he had to lay back down for a half hour. But he said once I let him up, he said he wouldn't lay back down again. He said he had to take care of his men. <sighs> so he said I felt so guilty because he said ultimately that could have been a contributing factor to his death is that, that he let him get up. And I said, well, you can't, you can't think of it that way. I mean, he was, he was doing what he felt was right. And um, I mean, at that time, nothing could have kept Father Capon from doing what what he felt he needed to be doing, which was taking care of his men. So having taken care of his men and the process of canonization and looking back at his life and not finding anything <laughs> that he did wrong other than not listening to doctor's orders, um, how does this work? Is there a long list of, of, of people in line waiting to be recognized as saints? Because I, I also want to be clear on that. It's uh, The Catholic Church, it's, it's a recognition recognition of sainthood right, not yeah. you're not creating or making right exactly exactly i i've been told that like any given time the congregation for saints is working on up to like 1500 cases of people being named a saint uh, the process goes you, you begin with the process um well like in in the case with father capon it was in his home diocese here in wichita so we do everything we can to investigate his life to try to live prove that he lived a life of heroic virtue and sanctity. Then we send everything that we have over to Rome um, for the Congregation for Saints to start to review. 
uh, during that time, what is formed is what's called a positio, which is the story of Father Capon's life, um, uh, which is taken from all of the documents that we sent over. Um, the positio on Father Capon is about um, 1,100 pages long. Um, so we have that document, and that's the document that the Congregation for Saints will review to see that we prove that he lived this life of heroic virtue um, and, and sanctity. Um, they have two, um, two different groups there in the congregation. Uh, the first will be, the four, first is the historical committee. Um, the historical committee has already reviewed everything that we've sent over, and they found everything in order, and that they said that the, that the, um, that the, it should progress. So it now goes to the, what's called the theological committee. Uh, the theological committee will review everything to make sure that everything that we've submitted and everything that we found out about, about Father Capon's life is doctrinally sound, that none of it goes against the teachings of the church. Um, once it goes through that committee, um, it goes to a panel of archbishops and cardinals who will review it, and ultimately they'll be the ones that will make a recommendation to the Pope as to whether or not um, whether or not this should advance, whether or not he should be, uh, to begin with, uh, approved as living a life of heroic virtue and, and sanctity. Um, and it's the Pope that will ultimately make that decision. Um, but alongside that, um, we also have to have some two miracles uh, approved. And I'm for, guessing uh, that's the most difficult part. Is that right. in, in? Am I correct right. in well, thinking that? Yeah, and and uh, I mean, this is what a, a lot of people I can have a misconception of, of what goes on with, with uh-huh. the, the miracles. Um, as Catholics, we believe in what is called uh, the communion of saints, and we believe that as we die, that our souls continue to live on. Um, and that those people that are are in heaven, um, so we ask them to pray for us, just as you would ask a friend here on this earth to pray for you. I mean, if you are struggling, you might ask somebody or say to somebody, hey, keep me in your prayers or something like that. Well, we believe we do the same thing with the saints, with those people in heaven. Um, so we ask, like Father Capon's intercession, uh, for, for prayers, I mean, so that he will pray for us here on this earth. So the, the miracles are what we believe a, a miraculous event has happened due to Father Capon's intercession or his praying for us. It isn't Father Capon that does the miracles. I mean, the, the miracle is done by God still, but we believe that it's through his intercession or through him praying to God for, for us. Um, so what we need to do is to document cases like in, uh, like in medical cases that um, that somebody is healed with no medical or scientific reason. That it could that the only the only reason that they can figure out for it is is through prayer. Um, so then we document that and we document the fact that the people were praying or asking Father Capon for his intercession, so that it can be documented that that. The, the miraculous healing would have taken place because of Father Capon's intervention and his, his intercession. We're currently working on several alleged miracles, healings that we believe have happened uh, through Father Capon's intercession. So once we get, we have information on one of those already over in Rome, uh, so it's being, being looked at over in Rome right now. 
We have several others that we're working on also that could easily be considered as miracles if they're proven. We'd like to thank Father Hatsi for his work in this initiative to recognize Father Capon. We'd also like to thank Travis Hying for sharing with us some of the audio from the documentary film based on the book, The Miracle of Father Capon, priest, soldier, and Korean war hero. And the ultimate thanks goes to Father Emil J. Capon for living a life that was truly miraculous. Do not let your heart be troubled or be afraid. Be troubled or be afraid. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.